a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Welcome back, Rebels and Imperials, to Force Ghost Coast to Coast. My name is Brian Salvatore, and today I'm chatting with Brian Volk-Weiss. Now, if that name doesn't sound familiar to you, his work certainly is. If you have seen The Toys That Made Us, The Movies That Made Us on Netflix, Brian is a producer on that series. He has also produced and directed tons of comedy specials and documentary series. Right now, he is the director and producer behind a series called Icons Unearthed, which airs on Vice, and Vice is currently doing a six-part series on, you guessed it, Star Wars. Brian is here to talk about the series, his Star Wars fandom, and the interview that he couldn't believe that he got. Dude, it, it, the, the, the reason I'm in show business and not a banker or a dentist in Queens is because of Star Wars. Um, I was, you know, I'm born in 76, so I don't actually have a memory of seeing uh, A New Hope or even Empire. Um, I have no memory of seeing them, but I do have a memory, and my mom told me that uh, basically after the movie, after I saw the movie, because I was so young, I thought it was real. Uh, basically, I didn't know the word documentary, but I, if you listen to the way my mom would describe it, I thought Star Wars was a documentary because <laughs> after I saw the movie, uh, you know, people would be like, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to join the rebellion and, you know, get rid of the empire. You know, I was dead serious. And that kind of freaked out my mom. So she bought me a book, which, you know, a lot of kids had, which was, you know, the making a Star Wars for five-year-olds. And I did, now I, this I vividly remember seeing the Death Star was like 12 feet wide and not, uh, you know, the size of a moon, Anthony Daniels with his mask off. So that, from that moment on, um, all I've ever wanted to do was make TV shows and, uh, and movies. Um, that's it. So I, I'm a little bit younger than you, but I have a similar Star Wars origin. I don't remember watching the first two films, but I remember my dad had rented The Empire Strikes Back. And I'm sorry, Return of the Jedi and just being terrified by the uh, the Emperor with the force lightning at the end of that movie. Just that. That freaked me out as a kid, I think, which was the intention of it, probably. But I I was similarly transfixed at a young age, and I think that so much of how I view the world has been somewhat shaped by my Star Wars fandom. So let's fast forward a bit. Um, You know, you would have been, I guess, in your early 20s when the prequels came out. What was your initial reaction to when those films were released? Um. I mean, you know, again, for your younger viewers, um, you know, the internet was like, I mean, literally brand new. Like, I mean, I'd probably use the internet 10 times when I went into a like Radio Shack or something or a Dwayne Reed um, and they had computers in there for sale. I think it was a Radio Shack in Manhattan and I watched the trailer um, and, you know, you see that creature coming out of the mist I mean, I, I remember I'll remember that moment till the day I die sitting in that radio shack 
watching that, uh, watching the trailer for the first time. Um, I, uh, I, you know, I was not, uh, <laughs> I was not, uh, you know, I was not jumping up and down thrilled uh, when I got out of Phantom Menace. Uh, I have retroactively, thanks primarily to the Clone Wars cartoon, uh, I have learned to somehow appreciate that film. But uh, I was uh, I was pretty stunned when I walked out. So I've, I've told this story on the podcast before, so apologies to our regular listeners. But when I was in high school, I was 17 in 99. Uh, I had heard that folks that worked at the movie theater nearby would get to see movies a day early. And so I got a job at the movie theater just to see The Phantom Menace a day nice. early because I was nice. I was that excited about it. And I remember walking out and feeling like I really trying to convince myself that I liked it. You know, I remember saying, like, it's just as good as the other ones. But about five minutes after I said that, I realized I was lying to myself. But, you know, I had built this movie up for years at that point. I don't think that's one thing I don't think younger, uh, you know, Star Wars fans recognize is that we had been told that there's we had already seen episodes four, five and six. And one day we'd see one, two and three. And so we had been building this up in our minds for our entire lives. And then to see that it's hard. I agree with you, but I don't know about you, man, but like, yes, I wanted it my whole life. I never thought it would happen. Oh, I was, I was naive enough to think it would happen. (laughs) Oh yeah. I I did like, at least for me. And I would say me, it sounds like I'm about seven years older than you. Um, Like I, none of us ever thought this would happen. I remember um, one day going into a Hallmark store with my mom and they had these Star Wars bendies. These were these, they were like- I had the, those, they, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that Gumby material. They were disgusting, crappily painted, like gross. Like they're gross. I, 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 I got all of them. It was like the first new Star Wars merchandise in like 10 years. And it was like, I, I couldn't believe I was seeing a new Star Wars product. And I think that's what a lot of your younger listeners may not appreciate is like, you know, the Obi-Wan Kenobi ends and, you know, Andor, what do you call it, is coming out, you know? Uh, Andor, yeah, yeah, was yeah. Andor, yeah. Boba Fett was early. Like, there's so much Star Wars now. Um, and people forget. I mean, there was like nothing uh, before Phantom. But luckily for me, Clone Wars redeemed the prequels. So I always say that all the prequels went up at least a letter grade because of the Clone Wars. Absolutely. Now, I want to talk about uh, Star Wars documentaries for a second, because, again, we're similar ages. Did you ever watch the From Star Wars to Jedi VHS documentary? Absolutely. That was hugely formative for me when I was growing up. And watching the first episode of the show... I, I could definitely see some of that connective tissue in there as well. What was it about the making of Star Wars for you that was as interesting as Star Wars itself? Well, I I always have a really weird way of looking at this kind of thing, but like I am I am very if you look at all the things that I've directed and I wouldn't blame anybody for not noticing this, but I'm really interested in risk and failure. 
And the thing which is so interesting about Star Wars was it was so risky. I mean, just mind-bogglingly risky for everybody involved, including Fox. Um, I mean, people, it's so funny in life, people say things without really feeling the impact of those words. And I feel like one of those sayings is, oh, when Star Wars came out, it was a big deal because no science fiction movie had worked uh, since Planet of the Apes. And if you exclude Planet of the Apes, there had really never been a successful science fiction movie. People just say that, you know, you watch all these documentaries, you read all these books and people just kind of throw that out there. But you got to you got to really think about it. There's a guy at Fox, Alan Ladd Jr., who is risking his entire career to get nine and a half million dollars, which today would be worth. I mean, it's not just about inflation. It's about the economics of the business. Um, Nine and a half million back then would, I believe, be worth would be a comparable political risk to an executive at a studio now getting an $80 million movie greenlit. And then you have to throw into the mix. The genre hadn't worked like ever. Like, that's what I've always found interesting. And then in the middle of taking this gigantic risk, where I think most people, if you're taking one risk, wouldn't massively up all the other risks, George Lucas decides he's going to open his own special effects studio. He decides he's going to shoot not on the back lot, not on the sets. He's going to shoot in the middle of Tunisia. He's going to shoot in London. Like, and it was just one risk after another. And hopefully if our show did its job, um, people will see it was truly a minor miracle that everything worked. Everything. What's even crazier about it is when you think about the film that got Star Wars greenlit, American Graffiti is the furthest thing from Star Wars you can imagine. <laughs> like it is, yeah. it it is, it's it's as if, you know, and I guess the Marvel films do this kind of where you see like an indie director get a Marvel property without any sort of, you know, other action experience. But Marvel is a well-oiled machine at this point. You are dropping somebody into a machine that is already running as smoothly as possible. Star Wars had none of that. Star Wars was building the machine as it was going. And it really is incredible yeah. to see how risky of a move it was. Yeah. And, and in my opinion, it looks like an independent movie. And I think that's part of the success of the film. Like this, they had all this money. To, it was, it's so interesting the way the movie was budgeted. So much money went into the sets. An unusually high percentage of the budget went into the sets. And the shooting schedule was unusually short because of how much money was put into the sets. And of course, the special effects. Um, so there's this kind of very edgy, jumpy, almost handheld style to the movie because they were rushing so far and so fast to shoot it. And then on top of that, as you probably know, George was just, you know, the only directing note he would give to anybody was like, talk fast, go faster, go faster, go faster. And literally Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi and the three prequels, they're literally independent movies the highest budgeted independent films ever made. 
That, that that's incredible to think about that. But it's it's absolutely true. Yes. So I, I want to talk about somebody that you get to talk on the show who has never done an on-camera interview before about Star Wars, and that is George Lucas's ex-wife. Now, there's a couple of things to note here. I, I think for a lot of people, they they presume that when you get a you know an, an ex of somebody, they're just going to be on there to basically slander the person for the entire time. And I have to say, it's really been very nice to see Marsha on the show because I think she, at least for the episode I've seen, she has a very level-headed look at all of this. Uh, why do you think she was so reluctant to talk about Star Wars for so long? And how did you get her to do her first on-camera interview about it? Um, so, I, you know, it's also I think it's worth mentioning, in addition to being obviously his ex-wife, she also was one of the editors on the movie. Yes, yes. And a very so, important piece of Star Wars. Yeah. And based on not just what she said, I mean, we you know, we got a lot of people confirming it. Uh, she really saved the movie. Uh, and I mean, the thing that's to give that statement a little context, there are a fair amount of people who saved the movie. I mean, John Dykstra saved the movie, John Williams saved the movie, but I feel like they get a lot of credit for that. I don't think Marsha gets the credit for what she did. But anyway, um, no, she um, she. Uh, she didn't there would I didn't get the feeling from her at all that she had anger towards George. I got the feeling that she had sadness towards George and sadness to the situation. Um, she she really didn't. She never said anything to imply like George was a bad guy in any way whatsoever. And nor did she say anything to indicate that George was a bad husband. Um, and she basically implied like that she had some stuff she had to work out for herself. And again, I, it, it would be an exaggeration to say she was blaming herself. She definitely was not doing that. But I feel like she took a lot of responsibility for the divorce and she did not come across as a as a cliched, bitter ex-spouse. Mm -hmm. um, I, I felt a lot of sadness. Um, she cried a few times. Uh, she made me cry a few times. Um, so like I said, it was more about sadness um, than it was about anger. Uh, and as it relates to how we, and by the way, a lot of her sadness was um, connected to the fact that she, she believes, and I, based on what I've seen with my own eyes, I do uh, agree with her, um, but she feels that she was written out of Star Wars and Lucasfilm history. Yes. And uh, there she she had a lot of sadness um, for that. And, and not just for like, hey, I'm not getting credit for my work, um, which was a part of it, to be sure. But I believe the majority of it was she just feels hurt that. Again, like not anger, but she just feels hurt that George processed the divorce that way. But I, like I said, I never got the feeling from her that she was angry that George did it. Like she was just kind of sad about it. But anyway, I'm not a mind reader. And the way no. we booked her was um, the way we book a lot of these shows. I mean, I cannot even begin to tell you how random it is. Some of the hardest, some of the, Biggest movie stars in the world, like Sigourney Weaver, have been reasonably easy to book. And then like the 
16th lead from a horror movie, uh, you know, you got to send a car to get them, hair and makeup and all that stuff. So it's like, <laughs> you really never know. But the way we got Marshall was we interviewed somebody. Uh, he asked, uh, was his, and this happens more often than you would think. At the end of the interview, he was like, hey, this was a great interview. Who are you trying to get that you don't have? Um, and we told him the number one person we wanted was Marsha Lucas. And he was like, well, who are you talking to? And we gave him a couple names. And he was like, no, 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 no. You got to talk to her assistant. So she gave us Marsha's assistant's name and number. And literally, I woke up one morning when I was supposed to be flying to New York at 3 p.m. I woke up in the morning and I had an email saying, that Marsha could do it tomorrow or for the next nine days. And if there's anything I've learned, if there's something you want in life, uh, you don't wait the nine days. So uh, I canceled my flight to New York. And at two o'clock that day, uh, I flew to Hawaii. And then the next day I interviewed her uh, for, for just about six hours. Wow. Wow. Now, there, there's, there's a rumor, and it's not about her, but it involves her. And I was wondering if you had any clarity on this. There was a rumor for years that the reason that George Lucas was not releasing the original version of the Star Wars trilogy on DVD or Blu-ray was that there was something in his divorce from Marsha that he would have to pay her for that version, but would not have to pay her if it was a special edition. Do you know if there's any truth to that, or is that just a rumor that's been going around for years? I got to admit, uh, not only do I not know the answer to that question, uh, I, I'd never even heard that rumor. So that's very interesting. Yeah, the rumor, like, it, it, go, it goes something along the lines of that, you know, when he was scheduling, when, when he was negotiating to do the special edition re-release, that he he got more of the rights than other people did, and he had worked her out of it, essentially. Yeah, I, I'd never heard that. But what I can tell you is, and this is in the show, she did say that, I mean, she gets paid on those three films. Um, she said she is a piece of them um, and she gets paid every year. Okay, good for her. Yeah, uh, I'm sure. Uh, I know, uh, I, I think it was Mark Hamill. I could be wrong, but uh, one of those guys got a quarter point retroactively mm -hmm. uh, after the movie was a hit. And Mark Hamill said his quarter point um, has been over $40 million over the course wow. of his life. So, and if I had to guess, Marsha got at least one point per movie. I right. think it could be as high as three. That is a thousand percent a guess. Right. Um, so even if she just got one point, I mean, that means each point is worth about 160 million uh, based on what I think Mark Hamill said. Wow, that's... That's an incredible amount of money. <laughs> wow. um, so sticking on the, the topic of people you wanted to get, I know you said, you know, Marsha was the top of your list. Did you make any efforts to get George to talk or did you know that he wouldn't yes. be a part of this? No, we always try. You know, obviously we don't make gotcha kind of documentaries, but, you know, we a lot of people are saying things uh, about who were there. And, you know, not that they were, you know, accusing George Lucas of, you know, killing Kennedy or anything, but you always want to get everybody's version of events. And we absolutely reached out, uh, as we always do. You know, we did a Toys That Made Us episode 
uh, all about Star Wars toys. And um, an amazing and, episode, oh, by the way. Absolutely that? essential oh, viewing. Oh, if anyone's listening to this and hasn't seen that yet, that is essential viewing for any Star Wars fan. Uh, thank you. Very kind. Um, so, uh, yeah, I um, I am very, um, you know, it's it's really a, a situation where. I just can't imagine him wanting to ever talk about this again, you know, right. like I've only been doing press for about five years and like. I, you know, I get asked about, the, you know, the, how do you pick the toys and the toys that made us? You know, I've only been answering that for five years and I'm already like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> so can you imagine, you know, hey, George, what was your inspiration for Chewbacca? Right. Like, he's been telling that for 50 years. <laughs> well, speaking of, of that, I, I do like that you guys dig into a little bit of the pre-Star Wars history, you know, the Journal of the Wills and the Star yeah. Wars and all of those things. Is there any particular element of that early stuff that you would wish stuck around because you find it particularly interesting? Not really, no. I mean, I, it, it's, I'll tell you, I'll give you, I'll, give, I'll answer your question. I hope, hopefully you don't feel like I'm cheating, but I'm, I'm giving you my real answer. Like, no, there's nothing in that stuff I would have kept. But, uh, and we cover this a lot in the Empire Strikes Back episode. Um, I have always been obsessed with Shadow of the Mind's Eye. Are you familiar? Yep. Oh, I've read it. We, we've done a podcast episode about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wish like they need to make that like a multiverse episode. Like they need <laughs> to do that as a two hour movie, even if it's just animated. That thing is not only bonkers with a capital B, uh, but like it shows you the way the world could have been. And by the way, statistically speaking, should have been, right. you know, they're, Empire Strikes Back really, again, from a statistical standpoint, should have never happened. Which is amazing to think about, you know, one of the most successful films of all time shouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, I've only seen the first episode so far. I cannot wait to watch the rest of these. But what is something that you learned about the prequels? Because I, I think my relationship with the prequels is a lot like yours. I think that the Clone Wars really helped rehabilitate them in my mind. I think also I've, I can now appreciate that Lucas had a vision that was very clear and that I appreciate when an auteur has a vision versus, I think, some Star Wars films that I maybe won't name that came later that didn't really seem to have a, a point of view or didn't seem to have a, a real grasp on what it was doing. I think I can appreciate the prequels more for a lot of reasons now. But what's something you learned about the prequels that if there's a prequel hater out there listening, you think might be interesting to them? Maybe we'll give them the opportunity to give it another shot. I mean, listen, the only thing I could tell a prequel hater uh, is watch Clone Wars, because <laughs> one of the major problems with the prequels that doesn't really get talked about is their prequels. So the problem that the prequels have that the Clone Wars fixed in season three is the prequels, you know, the ending. So you're literally watching like one of the most important things a movie can do is do its best job to hide the ending as long mm -hmm. as possible. Right. That's what a movie is designed to do. And George went right into these with everybody knowing the ending. So it was very challenging that way. But the other thing George did that was insane, but I think he retroactively pulled it off 
is yes, it's six hours of movies, but the story is so big. Like you're sitting there in um, uh, Revenge of the Sith watching Chloe Plune and, um, and Kit Fisto get killed. You're sitting there in the movie theater. You're like, who are these people? Like, you don't know, you have no idea. You're like, oh, there's some aliens getting killed. Who gives a shit? But like, if you watch the Clone Wars, you will fall in love with those characters. Yep. So that then when you watch Revenge of the Sith, like it's tragic the way these people like you've fallen in love with, like literally just get killed in one second in like an office building hallway. So like that's that's the only advice I could give to people that hate the prequels. But the other thing I would also tell them is um, and listen, I don't hate the prequels, but I'm not like, you know, I'm not wearing a prequels T-shirt. Um, but like our editors, you know, we're all in their 40s and 50s. And, you know, I kept getting first cuts that were slamming the prequels. And I'm like, you guys have to understand anybody under 30 loves these movies yep. and they think our movies suck. They find our movies slow and they find our movies boring. You can't just come in slamming these movies. So to answer your question, finally, you know, that rambled for an hour, um, two things I learned one, and I say this from my admittedly biased opinion, uh, they could have been a lot worse. Um, and, uh, you know, the two things I learned that I didn't know on that, on that, on that, uh, page is number one, despite everything he said, uh, George Lucas absolutely was horrified by the response to Jar Jar Binks and the, uh, movies because George has always said, oh, I made the movies for myself. I made the movies for 10 year olds. But if you look at his behavior uh, for uh, Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, uh, he was absolutely uh, pivoting away from uh, Jar Jar. He was doing that on his own. But then luckily he had hired a few people that stood up to him. And uh, yeah, they could have been a lot worse. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing I learned was, especially with Phantom Menace, I didn't appreciate how just insane it was, how far and how hard they were pushing the technology. Like, I mean, it wasn't even like, and it's part of the reason the movie looks like crap today. Like right, it's right. the only Star Wars movie. And a lot of people would argue with me and say Attack of the Clones doesn't look good either, but it, it looks fine. There's a couple shots here and there that suck, but you know what? There's shots in the original trilogy that suck. The A-Wing crashing into the bridge of the Star Destroyer looks horrible. Mm -hmm. Why George has never fixed that is absolutely uh, beyond me. Anyway, He's fixed everything else in the movie. I know, I know. It's really weird. But my point is, Phantom Menace looks horrible. The, the daylight battle, the battle droids, their shadow, like it, it, it looks the uncanny valley. Like, I don't even know if they knew about that when they did Phantom Menace. So like, that's what was very interesting to me was like, I always understood. Yes, the cameras were invented for the movie. Yes, like, yada, yada, like, I always knew that, but I didn't understand how insane it was that George was writing a hundred million dollar check to make this movie 
And you would think somebody writing the check would do, again, this is what's unbelievable about George Lucas. You would think a guy who's writing a $100 million check would then do everything he could to be conservative. But he didn't. If he had shot the movie on 35 millimeter, which is what every movie was filmed on back then, like he probably could have saved, I don't know, probably 10 to 15%. I mean, that's 10 to $15 million he could have saved. But he was just so adamant about pushing the technology forward. Um, he did it simultaneously. And that, that blew my mind. That is a, that is a good thing to, to remember just how much he was putting into it. Although I will, I will still stand on the, on the, maybe, maybe I won't die on the hill, but I will say that I think attack of the clones looks worse than Phantom Menace does, but we can agree to disagree there. I I told you uh, everyone would disagree with me. Um, (laughs) Something about Phantom that just looks horrible to me. I mean, I don't think any of the prequels look fantastic by any means, but I think Phantom Menace looks the most real of any of them. Whereas I think Attack of the Clones just looks like what it is. It looks like it's just a people in front of a green screen the entire time. Yeah. But, you know, let's let's not let's not end on that note. Uh, last yeah. thing for for our for our listeners here. Yeah. What is next for you? What do you have going on next? Where can folks find you on the Internet and where can they watch the show? Uh, the show is on Vice TV Tuesday nights uh, at 10 o'clock. Uh, that is a cable network. Uh, you just got to Google it if you have never seen it before and you can find it. They have a digital offering as well. Uh, I'm on Instagram and Facebook under my name. Uh, what else can I tell you? Uh, we have season two of Down to Earth with Zach Efron coming out later this year on Netflix. Um, we have another show called A Toy Store Near You, season five. That's coming out later this year on Amazon. And unfortunately, we have like nine or 10 other shows uh, that have not been announced yet. Um, <laughs> but, uh, we, uh, holy cow, are we busy. 